you have a Bible, and I hope you do, I'm going to invite you to go to Matthew chapter 5 with me this morning. Matthew chapter 5, and um, for those of you that know me from here at the church, I've been away for the last four Sundays, and I figured that my first Sunday back, we would deal with marriage and divorce. Just a warm and fuzzy subject to kick off uh, coming back, I know. And then um, my mom and dad are here, and I welcome my mom and dad. My dad's a pastor as well. And so either I am extremely cocky to preach a message like this with my dad in the audience, or extremely stupid, and likely a bit of both. Um, but I wanted to do this because, you know what, we've been looking at, a church, at the idea for Calvary Baptist Church since I've been here mid-January. We've been walking through the pastoral epistles, 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy and Titus, and trying to figure out through God's word, what does a church really look like and act like? How does a church function? What should a church do? How should it treat and act towards each other? How should the world see us? And one of the ways that we can really deal with this is through the avenue of divorce and remarriage. And it is true because every one of you here in some way has been touched by it. Everybody here has a story. For some of you, you have had wonderful examples of marriage, whether it's been your own or your parents or grandparents or friends. Debbie and I have friends in Prince Edward Island. Ralph and Ora McDonald are their names. Ralph went home to be with the Lord not too long ago, but they were married for almost 60 years and every time we would go to visit them, they would hold hands and they called each other honey and bunny and all these different types of things. And every time Debbie and I left, we used to say, man, we'd like to have a marriage like that. In fact, when Ralph was called home to be with the Lord, we wondered how long Aura would last, more from the brokenness of not having her husband around her anymore. But she amazed us both because she then clung to our Savior. And she still lives to this day. But you've also got stories of brokenness. Maybe you've been touched by the brokenness of human relationships. You've walked through divorce or it's affected you in some way. And often I think as church we get it wrong. I really do. I believe we get it wrong. We set up these standards and we set up these traditions and we set up these things and I want to make sure that we really understand it. So let me get it off with a little bit of humor, if you will, because I read this that a troubled man came to his lawyer asking for a divorce. The lawyer asked him, do you have any grounds? The man replied, yeah, about three acres. And the lawyer shook his head, no, I don't think you're getting it, sir. I mean, do you have a grudge against your wife? No, no, I don't got no grudge, but we do have a carport. The, the lawyer just shook his head. No, no, I'll, I'll, let me ask one more time. Are you really sure you want a divorce? Of which the client replied, no, I don't want a divorce. My wife does. She says we can't communicate. That's my best. That's the best I got after coming off holidays, all right? <laughs> so as we look at this subject, and I do want to try and do two things as we come to the table of the Lord. I want to try and help us wonder at God's standard. Because a holy God is the one who gave marriage. And a holy God has a holy standard in marriage. But I really hope that this will be a hope-filled sermon where we understand the amazement of God's grace. And as you come to Matthew chapter 5, specifically if you look at verses 31 and 32, 
I want you to realize that in this passage of Scripture, if you look in Matthew chapter 5, actually chapter 5, 6, and 7 is what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And we're going to look at this subject because it's one that can be not very comfortable to talk about. It's one that elicits strong emotions in many people, as we've just been discussing. But today's subject is so important to Jesus that he included it in his biggest sermon recorded in all of the Gospels. In fact, if you look at it, if you look at Matthew chapter 5 and you come down to verse 17 first, you'll notice that Jesus says, I didn't come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. And then you'll notice in verse 20, he says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. Now, when the people are listening to this, they are totally freaked out by this. Because in their day, the scribes and the Pharisees were at least outwardly known as the best keepers of the law. Now Jesus says, you've got to be better than them if you want to get to the kingdom. And you'll understand why. Then starting in verse 21... Six times, Jesus is going to say something. You have heard that it was said, but I say. This formula. You heard that it was said this, but I say this. In other words, Jesus is going to say, here's how the scribes and the Pharisees describe the law, but I will tell you as the giver of the law what it actually means. And I know this to be true because when you come to the end of chapter 7, the people that are gathered are amazed by what Jesus said because it says he spoke as one who had authority. So in other words, he was no longer speaking as someone who was interpreting the law. He was the giver of the law. And so when you come to verse 31 and 32, this is the third of these sixth. You've heard that it was said this, but I say this. And here's the formula. Basically, Jesus says, the scribes and the Pharisees, the law has been interpreted and practiced this way. I tell you this, and this is what it means, all right? So today we're going to look at what Jesus says about divorce and marriage in general. That's what we're going to look at. He's going to set the record straight. The Pharisees and the scribes had interpreted an instruction from Moses in Leviticus, and now Jesus is going to articulate what God's standard is and his intent is. And there's two reasons why we need to study this. If you take notes, here they are. Number one, God has an absolute standard about marriage. That's not up for debate. Scripture bears that out. There is an absolute standard in marriage. And secondly, the church has a responsibility to obey that standard. It's really true. This is so important because, let's be honest, in our world we're failing at it. Our world is really messed up. Michael Horton writes this, We have survey after survey that shows us that Christians are as likely to embrace lifestyles every bit as hedonistic, materialistic, and self-centered, and sexually immoral as the world in general. So often what we say as a church and how we live as a church doesn't agree. And that includes marriage. In fact, one pastor said, every day the church is becoming more like the world it allegedly seeks to change. Now, Hear me now, because I said this was going to be a message of hope, and so far it seems pretty heavy. When I say the world, the church is becoming more like the world that allegedly seeks to change, I'm not talking about us being perfect. I'm talking about how we display how in our imperfection we pursue a perfect Savior, and where the hope is found in that. 
where we stop acting like we've got it all together and we start being honest about how we don't, but we follow a Savior who puts us back together, even in this area of marriage. So we have to seek to have our words and our actions agree. We must be a church, Calvary, who listens to Jesus in this passage and not only agrees with him, but obeys him. So we have to have a balance between an aggressive pursuit of holiness and an aggressive pursuit of faith. Because, number one, God is a God of amazing grace. God is a God of amazing grace. And number two, the church is to live out that grace as well. So you have the wonder of God's standard over here. He's got a view of marriage. He gave it to us. There's a way it's supposed to be pursued and looked at. But then there's God's amazing grace over here. And we know amongst us that nobody has to remind us that we fail. Even if you've, you've been married and you've been in the same marriage, Debbie and I celebrated 23 years of marriage while we were on our holidays, and it has been a fun ride. But I would be so cocky and I would be so lying to you if I said, oh yeah, we've got a great marriage. No, Debbie and I have a great Savior who helps two sinners stay together. But we have to wonder at God's standard and be amazed by His grace. And that's what we need to do. See, we are a people who have been saved. If you claim to be a Christian, here's what you're claiming. You're saying, I've been saved from my sin and my sinfulness by the love and mercy of Jesus. And you're saying, we've, called upon, we've been called upon to live that grace and give that grace towards others. So, there are a variety of opinions, if you don't already know, offered to us about how God feels about divorce. And about remarriage. Some have say it's the unpardonable sin. I grew up in a world like that. Where if you got divorced and remarried, you were written off. Oh, maybe not to your face, but maybe behind your back. Things would get said about you or you would be treated a certain way. Or people would almost look at you like you were a second class citizen. Some people say, ah, God doesn't care. Live and let live. Live and let live. Just, you know, as long as you're happy, you're not hurting anybody else. That's all that, that's all that matters. And that's not true. And I think we all know that. Understanding what God says about marriage, about divorce, about remarriage can help us deal with the ever important question. Here it is. How is the church to deal with marriage or divorce and remarriage? And how can we help people who have or are going through it? If we're going to be a functioning church, a real church, how do we deal with all of this? And it is my hope today it really is. I hope you can see it in my face and hear it in my voice and know it in my heart. If you've been through divorce, if you've walked through remarriage and then wondered how people were going to look at you or treat you, I pray that through this you'll gain comfort in knowing this, that what God says about this subject. And for all of you that are young people here, if you're single or you haven't been married, you're not even dating yet or you're starting to date, I hope that this message will help you see the seriousness of marriage and that you will choose your future spouse very carefully. And lastly, I hope that we all realize that no matter what our situation, that God loves you. That if you fall on the side that is contrary to God's will, that there's forgiveness in Jesus no matter what your story is. So what I want to do is I want to break it down like this. First of all, let's look at the passage, verse 31 and 32, two verses. And I want us to look at, number one, God's original standard. So what's God's original standard? Here it is. 
Jesus says for the third time, it was also said. So in other words, this is what is being propagated. This is how marriage and divorce and remarriage is being talked about. Whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. That's what was being said. You don't like your wife. You don't like your husband. As long as you give, give him or her a certificate of divorce, all's good. But then Jesus says in verse 32, but I say to you, that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Now then it's full stop. And then Jesus keeps motoring along from there. He will bring it up again in chapter 19 of Matthew and we will get there. But I want you to understand God's original standard, okay? These are just a couple of verses. Again, Jesus is going to deal with this again in chapter 19. But notice Jesus' pattern. It was also said. In other words, he says, here's what you say. Now, it's absolutely important for us to know what is God's standard and intent for marriage. And to know that, we've got to go back to the Old Testament. If you've got a Bible, Steve's going to put it on the screen, though. In Genesis chapter 2, verses 24 and 25, God says, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked, and notice this, and were not ashamed. But this was God speaking. Now let's put all this into perspective a little bit more and go to Matthew chapter 19. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus makes it perfectly clear. He says, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh, so they are no longer two but one flesh. Now notice Jesus adds this. For this part, he has simply quoted Genesis 2. Notice Jesus adds, What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And often, if you've been to weddings, Christian weddings in the last, you will hear this said at the end of a ceremony, that let what God has joined together, let no man put asunder or separate. So God's standard is pretty simple. It's pretty simple. It's this. Number one, bodily loyalty. They are to come together as one flesh. It's the union of a man and a woman in monogamy, where they hold themselves in sexual purity before their marriage. It's the bringing together of their hearts, their souls, and their body before God as the witness. And this leads the two to become one flesh. So it's a physical relationship between a man and a woman. But it also means lifelong loyalty. Lifelong loyalty. God has blessed marriage from the beginning when he created one man and one woman, and he married them. Great preacher in California, John MacArthur, says this, As God designed it, Marriage is to be the welding of two people together into one unit, the blending of two minds, two wills, two sets of emotions, two spirits. It is the bond the Lord intends to be indissolvable as long as both partners are alive. The Lord created sex and procreation to be the fullest expression of that oneness, and the intimacies of marriage are not to be shared with any other human being. This is God's standard of holiness. Because then it's not only bodily loyalty and lifelong loyalty, it's exclusive loyalty. Marriage for Adam and Eve was their central human relationship. Now, I want you as parents to listen to me now. Adam and Eve were married before they were parents. And they stayed married after their children matured and left. In other words, marriage is stronger and more enduring than the bond between a parent and a child. Now let that soak in. 
as we raised our boys and as Debbie and I continue to raise our daughter, our boys, more so than Abby, have always kind of pushed the envelope a little bit when it comes between mom and dad and trying to play us off each other and stuff like that. And sometimes the boys, not so much with me, maybe because uh, of my personality and, and, and because of my physical appearance and stuff, but they've pushed the envelope a little bit with their mom. And one of the rules that are in our house is you can do a lot of things, but you don't mess with my wife. And I can't tell you how many times I've said to my boys, she's more my wife than your mom. And you remember that. She's more my wife than your mom. Now, I love my children. I would do anything for them. I love to hear from them and see them grow and mature. But you know what? I love my wife. I love being together with her. I love spending time with her. These are the things that we need. To, there's an exclusive loyalty. They were, we, 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 Jebby and I will be together. In fact, we tasted it a little bit because Abby went up to PEI for the summer. One, our, one of our sons is out in Regina. The other son stayed here to work at the bank and hopefully get enough money one day to take care of his mom and dad. And that's my master plan. Um, so Debbie and I got to travel alone to PEI. And I got to tell you, I was digging it. I was digging it a lot. I was digging being alone, not having kids underfoot and trying to make sure they didn't jump over the, the board of the boat and all that and wondering where the kids are and what they're doing and all that kind of stuff. I love having the kids, but I love being alone with Deb. And there's an exclusive loyalty. Now, think with me for a minute as you smile and laugh. What would the world be like if that was normal? What would the world be like? Imagine a world where every man and woman married stays married. Imagine a world where every man and woman loves each other that are in a marriage. A world where every child has a father and a mother. Where God is glorified and families glorify God together. Is that not an absolutely wonderful standard? Is that not a beautiful thing? In the beginning, Adam and Eve were in love and in perfect fellowship and they were naked and they were not ashamed. I don't know about you, but I wonder at God's standard. That's amazing to me. I can't imagine what a world like that would look like. And church, we should never stop being wonderstruck at the perfect standards of God. But we should never underestimate what catastrophic things happened to marriage when sin entered the world. Because when I read Genesis chapter 2 and God's standard of marriage, I want everybody to know something. Sin had not entered the world yet. God's standard of marriage was given in a perfect environment to perfect human beings by a perfect God. And then it all literally, excuse me, went to hell. It did. In a very spiritual, biblical sense. Because now in Genesis chapter 3, you read this. To the woman, God said, after they had disobeyed God after sin had come into the world, God says to Eve, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Now notice this thing. Your desire shall be for your husband and he shall rule over you. Now church, you know this. When we studied through 1 Timothy chapter 2, desire and rule, they're not good words. When God says this to Eve, he's not saying something good because if you go another chapter over to Cain and Abel, when Cain murders his brother and God goes to Cain, to Abel, or Cain and says, where's your brother? And he says, am I my brother's keeper? And God says to Cain, sin has desired you. 
It's the same Hebrew word as here is there. It means sin will control you. And so God is telling Eve, now in your fallen state, in marriage, you're going to seek to control or manipulate your husband. And guess what? Now in marriage, he's going to seek to rule over you. So in other words, Adam's attitude was like, fool me once, shame on you. Fool me twice, shame on me. So I'll make sure you don't fool me twice. So instead of loving her and leading her and being willing to sac- now uh, Eve would start to use or Eve would use her feminine wiles and charms to manipulate and Adam would use his masculinity to lord over and intimidate and marriage was wrecked. That was the result of sin. And God always knew that men and women because of this would not be faithful to each other the way his standard was meant to be. God knew because of sin that men and women would now fight with each other and hurt each other and thus enters divorce. And why is it, you know that I'm I'm talking about, right, think of the love songs and the cliches and everything. Why is it that we have this statement, you always hurt the one you love? We made up that statement. Why is it we do that? But let's be perfectly clear and honest. Honest about God and what he thinks of divorce. In Malachi chapter 2, verse 16, God clearly states that he hates divorce. He hates it. So God hates divorce, but he allowed for it? Well, again, you're probably going, now, Steve, you started this thing saying it was going to be a really happy, hopeful sermon. And thus far, all I want to do is dig a hole somewhere and (laughs) bury myself. Now, stick with me. Stick with me. God hates divorce, but he allowed for it? But when Jesus is preaching in our passage in Matthew chapter 5, the Jews and the whole world had spun this marriage thing in a totally different way. So number two, look at the world's application. Look at the world's application. Look at Matthew chapter 5 again, verses 31 and 32. You have said, whoever divorces wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. All right? I want you to look at this. The world is preoccupied with the grounds for divorce, but Jesus with the institution of marriage. If you go again now to Matthew chapter 19, where we get it a bit fuller, and read verses 3 to 9. In Matthew chapter 19, here's what happens. The Pharisees came up to him, Jesus, and if you look in your passage, it says, and they tested him. This was not a fun conversation. They were looking to trip Jesus up. They were looking to make him say something stupid or wrong. So they came to him, testing him by asking them what? Is it lawful? Lawful means more than just permitted, but commanded. Basically, did did. Did God command us to do this? And so he says, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female and said, Therefore, and he quotes Genesis chapter 2, that's pre-sin. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two but one flesh. Whatever therefore God has joined together let not man separate. Now the scribes and Pharisees go, but they said to him, why then did Moses command, command one to give a certificate of divorce and then send her away? And he said to them, because of the hardness of your heart. Notice, Moses allowed. They were saying command. Notice he says, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives But from the beginning it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, now notice this, except for sexual immorality and marries, commits adultery. So I want you to also realize, the world thinks that divorce is approved by God and is their right. Jesus calls divorce a concession to the failure of our obedience. 
the passage that Jesus quotes from and the Pharisees refer to in Matthew 5 and 19 is actually Deuteronomy 24 verses 1 to 4. And there you got to look at it to see what it says. Now watch what it says. When a man takes a wife, Moses writes, and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency, and the Jews were debating what indecency meant, he writes her a bill of a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house, and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife, and the latter man hates her, well, this is a real winning situation, isn't it? And writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife after she has been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I get that the Pharisees were really reading into this stuff that's just not there. So you see what's happening? Jesus is addressing the fact that, number three, the world looks at divorce lightly. It's easy, no fault. But Jesus takes it so seriously that even in our human failure, he wants us to be very sober and patient and deliberate in it. There's a narrow exception. Now, I have said all of this, which was very heavy, to bring us to the hopefulness of this so that you understand what's going on here, okay? The Jews thought divorce was commanded by God, and they looked for all kinds of loopholes how to get one. They had lost the wonder of God's standard. Now, why? Because of sin. Notice what Jesus does. But I say to you, now Jesus is interpreting their faulty practice. Now, if you understand what was going on in Jesus' day, there were two rabbinical schools. One was called the school of Shammai. I mean, I can't make this stuff up. All right? There was the rabbinical school of Shammai, which taught that divorce was commanded if there was unchastity found in your mate, your, whether your husband or your wife. Now, that sounds good, but they were even trying to come up with definitions of what unchastity meant. Then there was this other school, the school of Hillel, who was totally liberal. This rabbinical school taught that divorce was commanded and even encouraged for any reason. Now, this is right from their writings right from a meal burnt or poorly prepared. In fact, let me read this. This is actually in the Mishnah. Even if he found another woman to be prettier than his wife, he could get divorced. Hey, ladies, you like them? You like them apples? I mean, what do you think of that? Like, you, you listen to this and you go, this can't be right. But is our world any different? We have easy, no-fault divorce going on in both directions today, males and females, for what we call irreconcilable differences. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. Divorce is not commanded. It is a concession of God. In Deuteronomy passage in Matthew 19, these passages makes it clear that God allows divorce. He doesn't command it. And he allows it because we don't have the ability to live up to God's holy standard. God never approved of divorce. And Matt Chandler writes this, but the ways we abuse a thing do not negate the value of that thing. And just because we have found ways to diminish and devalue marriage doesn't mean it's less valuable. And just because Jesus narrows the exception to a very small set of circumstances, namely adultery, and Paul will add in 1 Corinthians 7, but if an unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved or under bondage God has called you to peace. So God says for adultery or desertion and under adultery, which is the vacating of vows, I would also add physical abuse. 
And I believe that's insinuated in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So Jesus tells us that he allows for divorce in which a spouse is sexually unfaithful or spiritually disconnected. Now, where's the hope? Where's the good news? All right, let me bring the train into the station. What's the gospel solution to all of this? What's the gospel solution? Well, Jesus makes a radical statement in these two verses, but he also knows who he's talking to. If you go back to the beginning of Matthew chapter 5, and if you have your Bibles open there, I, I believe these are 10 of the most beautiful verses in all the Bible. If you've been around church at all, you've heard these expressions because the introduction to Jesus' sermon is often called the Beatitudes. The Beatitudes. And in those verses is a series of nine blesseds. And two of them stand out to me in this particular subject matter. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, remember, one of the songs that the music team sang for us and led us in music to was the fact that we're unworthy. Many of you know that one of my favorite uh, uh, stories of the Bible, and I hate using the word story because it's real, is the Gentile woman that's looking for a healing. And Jesus says, I cannot give the food to the dogs. And she says, yes, but even the dogs deserve crumbs. And basically, you would almost think that God, Jesus is saying to this woman that she's a dog. And you wonder, where that sounds sexist and, and it sounds misogynistic. And, and yet, it's because she knew that Jesus wasn't putting her down. She was embracing what she is and who she is because she knew that she could because God was about to be merciful. You see, when you understand how holy and how awesome and how majestic God is, and yet you understand how that is all played out in Jesus' love, you don't mind owning the fact that we are colossal failures. Because then you can run to the one who says, yes, I know you're a failure and I choose to love you anyway. This is the gospel solution. And so blessed are the poor in spirit. That's the person who says, I have failed. I can't. I would like to, but even most of the times I don't want to. I don't know how to. Jesus, now I can work with that. Those who mourn, those say, I've screwed up. I've made a mess of my life. I, I don't love the right way. I'm not committed to it. Jesus says, I can work with this. Because those who are poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who mourn shall be comforted. And so listen to me. Here's the hope. In marriage, in divorce and remarriage. Number one, Jesus lived and lives as the faithful husband and as a substitute for our sinful failure. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul says this. For the love of Christ controls us. It's the love of Christ now. Because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died, and he died for all, and those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him for the, who for their sake died and was raised. Okay, what does that mean? So from now on, therefore, we regard no one according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ... He is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to Himself and gave us, notice this, the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God who rec was reconciling the Word to Himself. Now, I love, here's the best hope-filled words you can have. Not counting their trespasses against them. 
You know what? You can own whatever your failures are. You can own whatever has happened to you or whatever you've done. See, folks, listen. For those of you that know my testimony, I have had some horrific things happen to me in my life, and I have done horrific things to other people, but I go to the Savior who doesn't count my trespasses against me. And that's what you and I need to do. And when you get this, he says, therefore, notice, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. So we implore you now on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. If you're around next week, and I know it's Labor Day, and many of you are going to take a sanctified holiday. I get it. But next week, I'm going to preach about what it means to be justified. And let me give you a commercial. Justified, when, when the Bible says you're justified, it does not mean that God just, poof, made all your bad stuff go away. No, when God justifies you, it's even though he sees all of your bad stuff, he chooses to look at you differently. That's what it means to be justified. Now, I want you to think about that in regards to marriage and divorce and remarriage. This is the amazement of God's grace. Yes, we're to wonder at God's standard, but to be poor in spirit, mourn in our ability to live this way. So we turn to Jesus, who alone can save and forgive and transform us so that we can now live the kingdom righteousness that he is talking about. So let me also point out something amazing that's been discovered in the last little bit. Believe it or not, there used to be, it said, divorce was as big in the church as it is in the world. And that's simply not true. Statistics do not bear that out. All right? It's not true. In fact, divorce and remarriage is not as high in the church as it is in the world. And yet, the healing, the more marriages last when you make church a priority, more divorces are overcome when you make Christ a priority, and more remarriages last and glorify God when you make Christ a priority. Pastor Floyd says it's a major plus for the faith when this new knowledge gets found. In other words, one says if you have regular church life, then it's going to make a difference in the longevity and quality of your marriage. It really will. When you're around God's people and you're around God's grace, it doesn't matter what your story, you will find hope. See, here's how you know if you've got the right view of God. When you fail, if you run from church, you are buying into Satan's lie. If you run to church, you're trusting God at his word that the safest place to be is the church when you fail. I always know when someone is mired in shame or responding to biblical guilt. Because when you are mired in shame, you run and hide. When you respond to biblical guilt, you come out in the open and say, I need help. I need help. And I knew this with my parents here. There was many times I remember doing things wrong. And when I was afraid and ashamed, I would hide from mom and dad. But when I was convinced and I knew they loved me, and you guys know my story, I ran away from home. And I had no other options and stuff like that. And when I ran out of options and I came to my senses, just like the prodigal, I picked up the phone and called my dad. Why? Because I knew that if I responded to biblical guilt, my dad who loves me would respond. And when I called him, what did he say? I said, all I said to him, Daddy, I want to come home. And he said, I'll be there as soon as I can. God will never say to you, why are you here? You messed up. God will always say to you, I am so glad you're here because you messed up. Now let's work on this together. 
So it doesn't matter. So secondly, confession and repentance always leads to forgiveness and acceptance. It always does. See, I want you to see the principle that Paul is teaching. He says in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, To the married I give this charge, not I but the Lord. The wife should not separate her from her husband, but if she does, she should remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband, and the husband should not divorce his wife. But to the rest I say, I not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean. But what? But as it is, they are holy. You see, we are to seek reconciliation and to reconcile and live to the wonder of God's standard. Paul is explaining what it means to live out the gospel as opposed to the Pharisees who are just trying to play the system. So what that means is, for those of you that are married and you've been married to the same man or the same woman and yet you know, you know what? My marriage isn't what it's supposed to be then just admit it. Find hope in the gospel. Run to Jesus and give it to him afresh and anew. If some of you have been through divorce, don't walk around thinking, you know what, I've been divorced and my life is over. No, it's not. Not in Christ. The gospel's bigger than our screw-ups. The gospel is bigger than if someone has hurt you. The gospel is bigger if you've hurt someone. If you run to him with confession and repentance, there's always forgiveness and acceptance. Which means also the gospel means we now look to obey the wonder of God's standard, but we trust in the amazement of God's grace. Now what does that mean? See, this whole passage is a call to a particular way of thinking about and living in our relationship with God. So let me make this really clear as we bring the train into the station. For those of you who are single, for those of you who are married, for any of you that have been through divorce, for any of you that have been divorced and remarried before you were saved, or for those of you that have been divorced and remarried after you were saved, for us as a church, this means, the gospel means, we can unapologetically preach and teach the holy intended will of God for marriage, which is one man and one woman for life. That is God's holy standard. We don't have to be ashamed of it. We don't have to hide from it. We don't have to pretend it's not there. We don't have to soften it. That is God's holy standard. But it also means we understand that the ability to do this is not found in us. It's a gift from God. And we're humbly thankful to God for His blessing and our spouse's obedience. It also means when we encounter those who have been divorced or remarried, we don't rush to judgment. We don't demean or declare their worth, but we patiently point them and us back to Jesus. We don't assume to understand, but we build a relationship to understand. And see, this is the thing. How many times do I see this in church where we jump and assume we understand a situation without ever building a relationship of love and trust? And the greatest example of this for me was when I was in New York. We were on the subway and a man got on there with three children. And when they got on there, the man looked a little bit vacant in his eyes. I have to tell you. And he sat there and the, the subway car was filled and his three children were just hooligans. I mean, they were climbing over everybody. They were yelling and screaming. One was crying. One was grabbing this. And you could tell as the subway car was going, people were getting mildly agitated with this dad who could not control his kids. 
and people were looking and rolling their eyes and making eye contact and other people were like, I know, we've got to drive in the subway with him. And all this. Well, as it turned out in the stops, I ended up sitting next to the man and one of the kids literally fell over my knees. And so I kind of scooped him up and was trying to shake him. And the, and the dad really, you would think in New York that a guy would be like, who the heck are you, dude? And he was almost thankful. And it turns out we started to have a conversation. And the guy looks at me and I told him who I was, that I was visiting from Canada. I was up here with a youth group on a missions trip. And he looks at me in a big set of tears forms in his face and he said I've just come from my wife's funeral and we're on our way home and the truth is I have no idea how I'm supposed to raise these kids and I got taught the most poignant lesson that day for seven or eight minutes I stood in complete judgment over a guy's fathering ability never once taking into account the circumstances of his life and in the church, we cannot do that with our fellow brothers and sisters when it comes to divorce and remarriage. And if you've been through a divorce and you've been remarried, you must understand what God's wondrous standard means and what God's amazing grace means. So listen to me. Now, if you've been divorced and remarried, I don't have to tell you this, but don't confuse forgiveness and consequences. All right. David is a great example of that in the Old Testament. He did not obey God's standard. He suffered the consequences in his own life. Yet he never doubted God's love, God's forgiveness, nor God's mercy, nor his grace. He never acted like a second class citizen. He never acted like he didn't have the right to speak truth. He wrote many Psalms after his failure in marriage and his failure in morality. Yet God said he wanted nothing more than to build a temple. And God said, no, you're not the guy. Your son gets to do it. And David didn't go off and sulk and say, that's not fair, God, you're not being... No, he said, no, that's absolutely fair. And if you've been divorced and remarried, you know what I'm talking about. You know that life is never quite the same. You're usually dealing with an ex-spouse. You're sometimes dealing with double vacations and two Christmases and all the things that go with that. And it's something... So let, we at the church, we don't need to add burden to that. We need to be patient and loving and caring. And how can we come alongside? And you see, where there, we need to see totally how this works. And so, listen, we need to work with each other. So in conclusion, young people, marriage is a serious thing. And you need to think long and hard about it before you jump into it. And let me say this to all of our single people. Being cute or hot looking is not enough to build a marriage on. If you are a Christian, you need to marry a Christian. You need to do this because if Jesus is the center of your life and not the center of the life of your spouse, you're going to struggle. You're going to have problems. When you date, only date those who would be, you would be willing to marry. And let me tell all of you single people, especially ladies, if you're dating someone and that guy's abusive to you, physically, emotionally, or mentally, don't think because you put a ring on his finger he's going to change. He won't break up with him now. To the Christians who are married, if you're having trouble in your marriage, always remember this. Before you ever consider or think about divorce, you should always think about marriage and reconciliation. That's what we've been called to. You need to wonder at God's holy standard before you ever contemplate divorce and seek counsel and pray and be patient. And again, I've lived this. I'm finishing up my master's degree in seminary. My favorite professor, a guy named George, a couple years ago, I got a horrific phone call from his wife in which 
it was found out that he was having an affair on his wife for a year and a half while he was my professor. This guy prayed with me while he was cheating on his wife. And I was devastated. Nothing compared to her devastation. And I remember when Amy called me and she wanted to know, she said, Steve, based on the Bible, like, do I have the right to get divorced? And I said, absolutely, you have the right to get divorced. But I asked, I said, Amy, I got to ask you, do you believe George is saved? And she said, yeah, I do. Now, George didn't confess, he got caught. And for a while, it was really touch and go, but she said, I believe he's a Christian. So I said, all I'm asking you to do is to pray and to wait and think this through. But I've got your back no matter what. And so they went through the arduous task of confrontation and there were ups and downs and many valleys and all that, but George started to own his junk. He started to make things right and he started, so he, I remember when George phoned me in PEI and he wanted to talk to me and I said, George, I have never wanted to hug somebody and beat the absolute snot out of a fellow all at the same time. But he confessed his sin and he started the process of winning his wife back. He started to date his wife again. They sold her home. They bought a new home. He got her a new wedding ring. And almost two years later, they renewed their wedding vows. Now, that's a wonderful, happy ending to that story. But I also have family members that have walked through the tragedy of divorce. And not for one second do I want my family members or my brothers and sisters in Christ who have been divorced and or remarried to ever think that they're second-class citizens. If you've been divorced and remarried and was before your salvation, then listen, folks, enjoy the gospel. Enjoy the gospel and its power. If you know in your hearts it was according to God's design, trust the Lord. If you've been divorced and or remarried since you've been a Christian, but it was according to God's thing uh, with sexual immorality or spiritual desertion, you need to realize you've got to trust God at His word. You are not damaged goods. You are not second-class Christians. Now live by grace and pursue God's holiness and the power of the Holy Spirit. And let me go one step further. If you were divorced or remarried wrongly, then stop. Confess and repent. Acknowledge God's holy standard. Ask for God's forgiveness. And then from this day forward, start living the way Jesus would have your marriage to be. Exclusively, bodily, and lifelong loyal to each other and God. And church, we are to live life with each other, wanting and desiring God's ways. So that means teaching our children the right view of marriage. We're to be godly examples of what to do in Deuteronomy 6. And church, we're also to live life in the shadow of the cross the grace and mercy by which it stands. That means we don't tear our Christianity, nor do we create standards and classes of Christians in our churches. We're to love each other and forgive each other and accept each other as Christ has done for us. That's Ephesians 4.32, isn't it? Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. So plainly what this means is, no matter if someone has been divorced and remarried wrongfully before, if they've confessed that and repented of it, then the Bible says to stay in that condition. Now God calls upon that couple to live the gospel from that day forward, and that goes for the church as well. We're to love and accept that couple, and as that husband and wife show a godly example and live by grace, we should not only accept them, but learn from them and allow them to serve God. So I said that God hates divorce, and that's true, right? Malachi 2.16. There's some other things that God hates as well that we often don't like to point to, which is in Proverbs chapter 6. There are six things that the Lord hates, seven that are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes. That means eyes that are condescending. 
A lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood. A heart that devises wicked plans. Feet that make haste to run to evil. A false witness who breathes out lies. And one who sows discord among brothers. So church, God intended marriage to be one of the greatest things that two people can share. And his plan is for the two to become one flesh. And we must wonder at God's standards and ways of God. But we're always to be amazed at the grace of God.